HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's. Roberta'spizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los Be- síntomas. Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer. To the novel recipes developed by an Indian-American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, uh, your co-host of HR and Happy Hour, here with my co-host Katie Mosman-Wadler. Hey, Kat. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. And our program manager, Hannah Forden. Happy Thursday and happy start of the new season. Welcome. Wait, I have sound effects. Oh, wait, it's not plugged into anything. No, it is, but I can't hear it. Jeet hasn't activated me. Just kidding, we don't have sound effects. Oh, there they are. There they are. We got the ding. Yay. Yeah, with the new season, Kat has new magical powers. (laughs) Someone's giving me too much control. Um, uh, So we have an extra special guest in the studio today, Rana Welsh, the founder and chef of Purple Kale Kitchen Works, a vibrant culinary studio near the waterfront in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, and the author of The Nimble Cook. Welcome, Rana. Thank you. Uh, we also have, sitting in the studio with us today, Sari Kamen, the host of Food Without Borders here on HRN. Hi, friends. Hello. Sari gets to um, work with awesome people like Rana in her day job when she's not here in the studio hosting Food Without Borders, alongside Leah Kurtz. But this is my favorite place to be. <laughs> Yay. You get to do, they cross over today, which is lovely. Um, welcome to both of you. We're excited to have you. We also should give a shout out to our engineer for the day, Jeet. Hello, Jeet. Thanks for being here, G. Yeah, no worries. Um, All right, so we have a quick announcement that Katie's gonna run through, and then we have a few a few extra, 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 extra special headlines because we have some brand new shows. Extra, extra. Um, Read all about it. So before we get into the new shows, I want to give one more shout out while there is still a handful of tickets left to join the world's leading bakers as they explore the future of artisanal bread making. June 12th through 14th at Johnson & Wales University in Charlotte. So this is an incredible opportunity to hang out with our good friend Peter Reinhardt and some of the best bakers in the world. You should absolutely go there. 
Um, to find the tickets, go to the International Symposium on Bread um, on Eventbrite. So just search International Symposium on Bread. It's going to be super hands-on this year. So if you've been before and it's been kind of conferency with like some workshops on the side, this is going to be like all workshops, elbows deep in flower. It's going to be amazing. We'll be there. Hope to see you there. All right. And now it's time for our headlines. That is so fresh. <laughs> new season, new news music. <laughs> because this is the first HR and happy hour of the season, we wanted to give a quick shout out to three of our newest shows on the network. So the first one is Opening Soon. This is our brand new show about the journey of opening a restaurant, featuring conversations with some of the world's greatest chefs, restaurateurs, and the vendors that help take their business from an idea to opening soon. Opening Soon is hosted by the founders of Tillit NYC, our friends Jenny Goodman and Alex McCrary, who bring their unique perspective as hospitality industry insiders and veterans and answer many questions as the former proprietors of a now shuttered restaurant. And next, we are thrilled, we are overjoyed to welcome the Bushwick podcast to HRN. Um, it is an innovative series led by Luke Griffin, um, and it's returning with a new season full of surprising new stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick, which is the neighborhood that HRN has called home for a decade now. Um, you can also catch up on previous episodes of Bushwick Podcast to go behind the scenes of kitchens, cafes, community centers, where people from around the world come together to shape our most dynamic neighborhood. Um, so yeah, be sure to like check out the backlog, but also keep an eye out for new episodes that are coming out from HRN. It's a really, really, really beautiful show, and you're going to love it. And finally, we're bringing another established show into the network this season, but this one is coming from the West Coast. What? Yep. You heard it here first. That's crazy. Uh, Natural Disasters is a podcast about wine and shit. Mostly wine, but who's to say? Hosts Marissa A. Ross of Bon Appetit Magazine and Adam Vervolis of Vinda California dive into the basics, ins and outs, and latest conversations around my favorite, natural wine. But is it orange? Some, sometimes it's orange, sometimes it's yellow, sometimes it's unfiltered. All of it's great. Yay. I'm excited about that. Um, all right, and then we have one other show that we, we can kind of tease. It's coming to us in June, um, and we're excited. We'll have more on that soon. Are we going to tease it? You want to tease it? Yeah, let's tease it. Go for it. You heard it here first. This is the thing. When you listen to HR and Happy Hour, you get like the insider information that is not necessarily otherwise available. So thank you for being a listener. Um, so we're going to just tease our show release that's going to be coming out in June. This is something that we have been looking forward to launching for a long time. The show is called Queer the Table. It's hosted by Nico Whistler. And it's all about queer food, queer issues in food and hospitality. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. And uh, you'll hear more as we get closer to the month of June. I've been hearing some uh, early drafts of teasers and trailers. And oh my gosh, am I excited. It's going to be awesome. Okay. So now let's turn back to our guest of honor today, Rana Welsh. Um, Rana has spent over 20 years in the culinary industry as an executive chef, a pastry chef, and consulting chef, all the chefs, in a host of quirky, beloved New York City restaurants and also abroad in France, Spain, Greece, and Sicily in restaurants and pastry shops on farms and in private homes. Um, so Rana, can you just kind of tell us about some of the highlights of your career leading you here back to Brooklyn to open up Purple Kale Kitchen Works? Uh, sure. So the highlight, first highlight for me was when I started cooking in Austin, Texas after graduate school. And I got this job because um, I was in desperate need to get out of my head. And were I to have crossed paths with um, a woodworker, I, you know, I'd be building furniture today. But instead, <laughs> I met a kind chef who took me under her wings um, and that started a love affair with making things, which crossed nicely with my other love, which is to eat. Um, when I had an opportunity to come to New York to take advantage of a cheap apartment sublet, I did so. Found my way into a special niche of the New York restaurant scene, and that was at Savoy Restaurant, which became the bedrock for me and for... Um, my outlook on food. Um, I was told by uh, people who took pity on me when no one else would answer, my line cook 
application um, to say, don't spend your money on cooking school. Instead, go and travel. So I did that um, with my proverbial backpack. And, you know, (laughs) 10 years too late, right? Most people are like, you're 20. I'm like, I'm not 20 anymore. (laughs) Um, But I stayed in the same um, hostels as everyone else who was and worked (laughs) the same prep cook jobs um, in various kitchens um, in languages that were new to me. And... um, you know, to say that that was life-changing was an understatement. So when I came back to New York, um, I had, um, my priorities were more about finding communities and food uh, than they were about positions in kitchens. I've been thinking a lot lately about kind of being in maybe late 20s, early 30s and, and, and realizing like, maybe I should have taken a gap year before college and tried to figure out some things on my own before I did that. But on the other hand, I think once you have some experience under your belt, that experiences like that can ha- be more meaningful. Do you think that you did get more out of traveling because you had, you know, been to school, learned some things, had some experiences that made you have a different perspective going in? Sure. I mean, I think I've needed a gap year in all <laughs> phases of yeah, my yeah, life. Yeah. That would be really nice. I could use one now. Um <laughs> But yes, it did. I mean, for one thing, I knew what I wanted or what I didn't want, um, even though what I wanted was very abstract, but it had something to do with um, loving my work and needing a little bit of balance um, and finding examples of that overseas in people who dedicated their life to food, but who had their families involved in the business um, or otherwise were part of their community in such a strong way that was unlike what I had seen in New York. So it held me, it had me come back to the States with um, some higher standards, I think, um, for myself, at least. Um, But then, of course, I went back into the New York restaurant world and all standards slipped. (laughs) Can you talk about, like, what some of those standards were? Working in the restaurant scene is hard. Um, So for me, um, I was... um, hoping to get credit for my work, um, hoping to show something at the end of the day for my work. Um, Sometimes that was the case, sometimes not. But um, the one thing that's great about New York is the learning curve is steep. And when you put yourself on the bottom of it, um, there are so many ways to grow. Um, So, uh, you know, as I... uh, as I began to take on positions of more responsibility in the kitchen um, and then saw my husband less, my family never on holidays, you know, that's sort of cliche. Um, it became evident to me that I had to, at some point, make some choices about what I wanted. Um, and making those choices took, you know, a decade to make. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit more about why that that process was kind of such a long long process to kind of get to where you wanted to be? Because I loved what I did. Yeah. Because I loved working until one or two in the morning. I loved working really physically hard job. I loved creating things. I loved pushing myself. Um, I didn't love not making money. I didn't love (laughs) um, some of the tensions in the kitchen that... Um, were the result of me being the only woman in the kitchen. I didn't love being tired, feet hurt, you know, all those, all those things. Did I love what I did? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really did. And, um, and so, you know, when I, um, then actually, um, when my husband and I started a family and, uh, the transition for me from working in the restaurant world to not was really difficult, um, in part because, I wasn't interested in settling for anything less. Um, And the suggestions um, around me from really well-meaning people, like my mom, to get in on the mini cupcake craze, for example, only made me feel worse about the decision. Um, Meaning that that was something they thought, like, now that you have children, this is something you can do. Now that I'm a mom. This is, like, within your Mm -hmm. reach. That's right. That's right. You can do my aspirations are now right. Not to knock cupcakes. Sure. Right. Um, I just thought somebody else could do them 
better and <laughs> enjoy it more. Um, so yeah, so stepping out of the restaurant world for me was a bit jarring, but mm -hmm. then also made me realize, um, you know, what it lacks. So can you start, talk about the start of Purple Kale? Sure. So it was around that time where I um, was trying to feed two people, myself and my husband, um, a baby then who didn't eat solid food. And, you know, I was distracted to um, an unimaginable degree. I thought that I had worked hard before. I thought I knew what tired was. I didn't. Welcome parenting. <laughs> so um, it was my complete failure to feed myself and my one other person in the household, let alone a growing baby, um, that had me really reckon with what was I doing and what did I know. So here I had... Um, years of experience feeding hundreds of people in a fine dining setting and couldn't get a simple dinner on the table for two. Um, I always say I, you know, undersalted pasta if I didn't overcook it. I burned everything. And um, I realized that no matter what I learned, um, none of it could apply to my new circumstances. My skills went out the window when it came time to me having to put food on the table when I was tired, when I was hungry, when I was not hungry, when someone else was hungry. Um, so I began to think of ways to cook uh, by circumstance, cook in my house, um, and how do I take those skills that I learned from the professional world and tweak them, flip them upside down, scale them down, whatever it is, to adapt to the whims and the mishaps of life. And the business grew out of there. Mm -hmm. um, so what would like a typical class at Purple Kale Kitchen Works kind of look like? What kind of skills do you want people to leave the class with? That's a great question. Um, I have the benefit of changing the classes whenever I want. Um, and it's constantly evolved. But the interesting thing for me is the first class that I taught was to um, a bunch of friends around me, uh, some of who were parents, some of who weren't. And um, we all sort of were trying to grapple with the same thing, which is we don't have time, we don't have energy, we have other people to feed, not just ourselves, how do we put something on the table to eat? And this was, I wasn't interested in meal planning, I was, I was just interested in really good food. Um, and so I invited people over for the first class and prepared some things. We sat down and we talked for about three hours without ever opening the refrigerator. And what we talked about was what happens at that moment when you walk into your kitchen, stand in front of your refrigerator, and say, there's nothing to eat. So um, out of that one class grew um, a workbook that emphasized an ingredient-driven approach. So for me, I'm interested in teaching people how to cook with what they have which includes whatever skills they have, time, constraints, and of course their ingredients, in order to put together many delicious things to eat. I'm interested in improvisation, not as we think um, it's the process of um, sort of limitless creativity, but as a skill of adaptability. Um, and so taking people through... Um, a new perspective, which puts ingredients at the forefront, leaves recipes aside, and gives people the accessibility that we all should have to our own kitchens. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of the um, things or challenges that hold people back from having that approach to, you know, going into the refrigerator and saying, like, I can make something out of this? So I think it's a number of things. Um, one is um, not much experience. I mean, um, many of us are taught to cook 
with a cookbook and a recipe. So we don't necessarily have a really good feel for an ingredient and maybe a particular technique. We just know where that ingredient technique is going to take us in terms of the dish we're going to have. Um, but the other thing is that I don't think we ask the right questions. So we open up our refrigerator and we ask um, not what's edible, but what's for dinner? What kind of dish or plate or meal can I make out of this? And what I tell people is that that's, that's, it's not just asking the wrong question. It's actually asking a question too far in advance. So instead, um, for me, I tell people to just take one thing and ask what one thing can I do with this one ingredient? It's a way to get started. We have, um, all of us, um, uh, have a moment, a brief moment of paralysis when we open the fridge because we think too much. So I like to tell people that they should open it, close their eyes, reach in, grab something, pull it out, pretend someone just gave it to them, and then say, what one thing can I do with you? Um, and it allows us to move from onion to something else, though we don't know what that something else is. So the other thing is that people need to be okay not knowing. Just um, decide that having something delicious to eat is good enough and enough. How do you grocery shop? Like, what is your first process, or do you go to a, to a particular section first, or how much are you thinking ahead about the week and dishes, and what does that look like for you? Right. Well, so I have kids, so half of my cart are snacks, and um, then the other half is probably produce. I'm not a vegetarian, um, but there are many more things available in the produce aisle than there are in any other aisle. So I look to that for variety. I basically buy what I like. I am a stickler for things that are sourced responsibly and local. Um, and so I'll buy things maybe in bulk. So what I mean by that is um, maybe if you're going to buy a recipe for a, I don't know, a snap pea risotto, you buy a certain amount of snap peas and the, um, the scales available for you to weigh it for a specific recipe. I would just say I'm going to buy them and however many I decide I'm in the mood for. It makes it faster to shop. Um, it makes it easier for me to choose. I like this. I don't want that. Um, so then what I do is, because I'm not shopping with a specific dish in mind, I'm just filling my cart with ingredients. All I know is that um, my only obligation to myself is to use them. So I really look for ways to do, um, to bulk up, not by making, let's say, a big casserole at the beginning of the week, which then I would freeze for later use or eat throughout the week. Instead, I'll make um, a variety of different ingredients prepared in maybe different ways and then use those interchangeably um, to make many more and different dishes with the idea that once something is prepared that I'm more likely to use it in this very improvisational, impromptu way than I would be if I found it raw staring at me in the, from the produce drawer. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the part of the book where you focus on how to or, um, take what is fresh produce and preserve it so that you're, you're doing that one thing to the produce yeah. and then you're able to like extend the shelf life? Right. Um, right. And extending the shelf life I, can be really important. Um, so an example of that would be, uh, let's say, to take ricotta cheese um, and bake it into a custard where you're doing uh, very little to season it, maybe some salt. Sometimes I add pecorino cheese, also an egg, and it sets it so that you can splurge on really terrific ricotta cheese that would normally spoil in a matter of days, but now you've extended the shelf life to a matter of weeks. It also then firms a little bit, so it becomes something that you can slice, mm -hmm. something that becomes a layer in that lasagna, should you so choose. Um, also something that you can serve even as dessert or as part of a cheese course. Uh, so for me, 
the, you know, ricotta doesn't need to be prepared. Uh, you don't need anything but a spoon, really. My choice in making it into what I call a starting point is understanding that in my house, we don't eat it with a spoon, or at least not all the time. So I try to make it into something that is more of a convenience or that at least screams to me more loudly than it does in raw form, right? It's not hard, for example, it's not hard to slice an onion, but it is, it's something we don't do if our cutting board is covered with unopened mail. So sometimes <laughs> what we need to do is put our ingredients into a form which, we're, which makes us ready to cook. And, um, yeah, you have well, a question? Yeah, so I'm curious. I think your students are, like, pretty diverse and probably come in with a lot of different skills, but are there, like, two or three kind of aha moments that maybe are translated in the book but that you've seen students be very surprised by or that have changed their minds? Yeah, usually um, the... the um, uh, the first thing people say is, this is so easy. And they say that, for example, when I have set the class up so that there are a number of different starting points, uh, so maybe it's the ricotta custard, or maybe it's um, confit tomatoes, and maybe it's sliced lemon, right? Lemon mm -hmm. cut in wedges actually allows people to use lemon more frequently than if it were whole. Um, so these various things, and then encouraging them to come in at the point where it's already prepared and put something together to eat, recognizing that they could put the tomatoes in a bowl next to the ricotta on a plate. And while that feels so simple, the dish itself is one that I would be delighted to replicate on a random weekday. So one is the simplicity that this step-by-step um, -step approach brings to the process of cooking. Um, the other is that there is, for a lot of people, tremendous relief at being able to um, untangle themselves from maybe they think it's a good idea to sort of meal plan or um, they're feeling tied to recipes or they feel tremendous guilt throwing things away. And there is an ease that they feel all of a sudden being able to pick up an ingredient and just do something to it. They, they begin to feel like makers again. We all like to make things. And when you ask people, um, why are they in this class? They'll say things like, well, I'm not very creative, but um, which to me is nonsense. We can all make things, and I think that that's one of the most satisfying things about cooking, whether it's for yourself or someone else. Mm -hmm. I love what you say about the cut lemons. I'm like I'm a lemon freak, um, and I go through I go through probably like one to two lemons a day. Um, but I just always I go through them so much that I just keep them out on the counter. Like I always have a half yeah. a lemon just sitting there, and it goes in like everything. It's in my water. It's like on every piece of food that I eat. Um, but I, I, I think too. just like yeah. having that there is um is awesome and lemons it, are the best guys. it also <laughs> leads to some um really delightful places so for me mm. i also always have, i have half lemon and a half limes all just all over my fridge yeah. you know they roll out <laughs> and um so then if i use one and sometimes i don't use an entire half so i squeeze it a little bit and then i leave it on the counter yeah right same. and then after a while i accumulate a bunch of partially used if not fully used lemon halves. And what I noticed is um, that after a few days, they begin to dry out a little bit and they, they look really pretty. And because at the time that I was playing around with these, my kids were younger. And so I immediately went to what would another parent, not me, what would another <laughs> parent do with this, right? Stampy, crafty thing. Um, that quickly went out of my mind. And, um, but then I added to it and I all of a sudden had a pile of nine lemon halves. In aggregate, they suggest something of value. You know, it takes more of me to throw away a pile of something that's really pretty 
than um, than it would one off. So just by sheer fact of being sort of lazy, I set myself up for recognizing something that maybe I didn't see in the moment of that single squeeze, but I saw days later um, as a group. And then what I did is I took those dried lemon halves and I cooked them in honey with a couple of spices. And that turned the honey into a lemon honey, but it also candied the lemons in the most shortcut way possible. And I began to then have this sort of lemon honey candied thing on hand, which was definitely not why I bought the lemons in the first place. Um, but because um, I take one step at a time each time. I now had these lemons sort of saved as candy and honey so that their shelf life was extended now by months. And the one lemon that I bought this one day saw its place in a dessert, maybe on top of that ricotta cheese, months and months later. And this works just by taking little steps and thinking sort of systematically, like, how can this be of use to my future mm-hmm. self? And you, so this is a really important part of our conversation is to talk about like zero waste cooking and um, how you sort of can approach that as a cooking school and then also as a home cook. And maybe what are some of the ways that um, I think like with a cooking school, you've got kind of an advantage of having scale of ingredients because you've got lots more people cooking but how do you as a home cook like this lemons is a great example kind of accumulate the scale to make use of pieces of food that would have otherwise gone to waste it's a great question some of it is scale so in that example where you almost have to you know prep cooks have the advantage of um, cutting an entire case of leek tops off only to then confront an entire um, garbage bag of of greens, you know, so um, some of it is scale and the ability to see what's in front of you as useful and as value. But the other thing we need to recognize is unlike restaurants, we have the advantage of just feeding fewer people. Um, And I think the idea that um, somehow all meals, all dishes must serve four is an outdated one. And that's one that constrains us to Um, not being able to see the potential for a dish in a single turnip. Now, I don't know offhand what I would do with that single turnip. Um, So it might be one of those things that I pull out of the fridge and I dice, and then I put it back in the the fridge for somebody else, my future self, to deal with. (laughs) Um, So so for me, food waste is the, um, is just part and parcel of a perspective, which Um, has ingredients count for themselves and not count towards specific dishes. But there are also just, you know, I tell people um, when a lot of people say, well, how do I start? Do I, you know, buy all this stuff at the farmer's market and go home and, and prep it? I mean, okay, if that's, if that's exciting to you. Um, But usually I tell people to go home and look at what they're going to throw away. And can they do one thing to the thing that's about to perish um, and if not, can they do something the next time they buy it? You know, usually we're all really good actually at responding to the waste in our homes, but we, we've gone in the opposite direction. So instead of taking the half a bunch of celery and maybe infusing it into butter, which sounds really fancy, but is, is as simple as it sounds. It's like making tea, but with butter and herbs, mm. um, Instead, the home cook, and I see this all the time, stops buying fresh herbs altogether. So I do think that we, um, nobody likes to waste anything. And we've already responded to um, our propensity to waste by really taking up the meal kit wagon, right? We want to buy only what we're going to use. So I think that all of those Um, the attraction of meal kits is with the best of intention, right? I don't want to waste any more of my time or my food. I don't think that I need to, um, you don't, you don't need to sell people on a zero waste philosophy. You just need to give them, um, the instructions to act instead of the pressure to force their food into scripts Mm -hmm. of how people should eat. 
on that note, um, let's take a really quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you about um, some organizational things as well. I think uh, I, I want to get into the nitty gritty of like labeling, labeling. in your refrigerator. N- real nerdy stuff. All right, yeah. Yeah. we'll be right back. My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Sari Kamen. And I'm Leah Kurtz. And together we host Food Without Borders here on HRN. Immigrants make our food system vibrant, diverse, and delicious. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about how food connects them to their past as we explore what it's like to be an immigrant in the U.S. today. You can find Food Without Borders wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to HR and Happy Hour. We're here with Rana Welsh. Um, okay, so let's get into how to organize your refrigerator in a way that enables you to kind of take on all these techniques that you talk about in the Nimble Cook. Right. Um, in the best of worlds, I would have you label your stuff and put it into containers. I can tell you that I don't always do it, um, but I regret when I don't. Here are the labels I use. Talk about being nerdy. Um, <laughs> We're I have stopped using painter's tape, which is um, purchased by the case in most restaurants. And instead, I use um, re-stickable file folder labels. Smart. They're white. They're bright. <laughs> Sharpies write on them really well. They come off even if you've forgotten to take them off and you've put them through the dishwasher. Oh. Yeah. Wow. They're not sticky. Wow. They're inexpensive and they're everywhere. But, you know. And they re stick? And they re stick. And the so sharpie comes label off. And, and it comes off. That's so cool. Yeah. And there's no stickiness. There's a sleeve of them attached to my refrigerator along with a little Sharpie hanging down. I'm doing that, like, tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's really the best thing. Um, here's what labels do. Labels tell us what we already know, but um, we often don't remember or are blind to. So when you have something in the back of the fridge, you know exactly what it is. Oh, those olives, again, Right. But we become um, numb to them and to their possibility. All they represent is the time we had Bloody Marys and nothing else. So we look at our refrigerator as like these. um, It's almost it's it's a bit of an archaeological dig of events. And, you know, I bought this with this in mind. um, And therefore, it's hard to repurpose it. So a label basically says, here I am, I'm available, I'm fair game, you know, do you want to play? (laughs) Sometimes I will put a label on things that are already labeled, but because it's my handwriting and I need it to be as um, bold and forthright as the rest of my ingredients. Now, this is, by the way, when I'm totally on top of things. And most <laughs> of the time, you know, I, again, I don't. And when I don't, another organizational tip is um, that before you go shopping, dig from the back first. And also um, think about the potential for ingredients that aren't perishable. So I talked about, you know, honing in first on the things we would normally um, throw away quickly or or on the brink. Uh, But then there are things that are lining your refrigerator door. There are seven mustards. There are four things of capers. There's the Indian condiment. None of these, yeah, (laughs) yeah. None of these things go bad, and that's their beauty. Um, But we also um, forget that we have multiple jars of them, and we don't use them beyond. you know what they were constricted for. So maybe it was the ketchup that we bought for the hot dog. I mean, so so it's good to clean out 
now and then. When you take out your seven jars of mustard, then you might say, oh, marinade or dressing instead of just, you know, condiment on the side of my ham sandwich, mm-hmm. right? Thing that falls on my foot every time. Thing that falls on my foot, right. <laughs> That's what happens in my freezer, things like mm-hmm. So, you know, some of it, so labeling is great. Shopping from your own fridge is great. Um, and, you know, the, um, the general cleanup of... Um, condiments partially used no you know bits of cheese it's never the package of ground meat that i bought that i have to really contend with that cost money i'm using that first you know it's the other stuff and i have well okay i have a challenge which i'm sure i'm not the only one but you know when you get your csa box and nothing is bagged, and it's all gigantic, and you have, like, a 14-inch long head of lettuce, yeah. and you've got, like, all these turnips and kohlrabis with the long tops and everything, and um, oh, I often will end up just kind of, like, finding bags around, or I, like, don't have the right ones, but I cram everything together in one, but my storage of produce like that is so suboptimal and uh everything wilts and it's terrible and i know that i'm not the only one that this happens to and i'm pretty good about using this stuff but it's like a day and it's all wilted yeah what do you have any advice yeah well so i like getting um vegetables like that with their stems i mean whether they're lettuces um or things with bulbs attached because it clues you into how fresh the bulb itself is or the stems are um but if i can uh, I will wash everything in this great big ice bath in my sink at once. Mm-hmm. It is worth it for me to take 20 minutes to do that rather than 20 minutes each time I want to use the thing. Um, and what that does is it wakes up the greens. It allows me to stem them if I want. But in order to store them, the thing that greens need is to be not dry and not wet and for this, I use uh, paper towels mm. liberally so that the greens are not laying and squished on top of each other. They are layered. They're rolled up tightly. Um, and then I reuse those paper towels when I unroll them later on. For um, The other thing is, too, not, not all these greens are worth saving, like, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy that carrots come with tops, but I do not like the way they taste and they're not worth turning into pesto for me. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is taste it raw before you do anything to it and decide if it's something you want. Um, And then otherwise, yeah, I think that while I don't wash most things that go into my fridge before they do, I try to wash my greens. Yeah. And so you've rolled them up in paper towels, so they're kind of humid and not... They're cushioned. What do you do? You right. put them in a hard container. Do you bag them? Do you I put them don't. In just like that? So I actually take my paper towel off its holder, its dispenser, and I roll it out like it's a carpet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just lay the leaves on top, not in any precious way, but basically a single layer. And then I roll another sleeve of paper towels on top of that, and I do that until all my greens are gone. And then I roll it up like a big burrito um if it needs to be secured then i'll take a piece of plastic wrap and make it into a little belt (laughs) tie it and then shove it into my drawer Hmm. cool that's a really good tip (laughs) i appreciate that my favorite thing to do one other thing with lettuces so things that come on um things that come bundled like a head is to cut that into wedges through the core um, wrap each wedge separately so mm-hmm. that when you do dip into your produce drawer, you just kind of grab a single serving of salad at a time. And it's like much more manageable. Much more manageable. Mm-hmm. I want to go back quickly to the refrigerator door and the mustards. Can mm-hmm. you talk about the refrigerator door mustard recipe that you have and what app- 
application you have for it? Sure. So um, the refrigerator door mustard um, is actually a variant of something called a refrigerator door relish, which is just those same ingredients. In this case, I used anchovy, green peppercorns and brine and capers, though you can imagine you can use anything that is salty um, and sort of meaty tasting. And uh, I put them together in a food processor. This was my way of clearing out my refrigerator, uh, moistened it with olive oil. In this case, then I added mustard to it. And it is the most um, assertive, delicious mustard for general mustard use. I also use it as a stuffing. You can add it to the bottom of a chicken pan, for example. You can stir a little bit into some broth. Um, good on buttered toast. It's the kind of thing where you begin to think of these ingredients which um, only ever just shared the same space as bolstering one another. And so you reach for it whenever you just want something a little bit bold or salty. Yeah. Um, and then, oh, I had one more question for you. I read a piece that you wrote for, I believe, Travel and Leisure about advice for when you're leaving on vacation, how to kind of treat uh, the food in your refrigerator and your kitchen as a whole. What, what were some of the tips from that piece of if you're going away for the week, a long weekend or a week, what should you do to make sure you don't come back to a, a mess? Yeah. <laughs> so what doesn't work for me is to... Um, make big meals, right? It doesn't work for me. To, it works for me to take a few days in advance and to, to take sort of stock of what I have and whittle it down. Um, and, and, and so that goes against cooking a lot because then I have to bring extra ingredients in. So what I do is I try to just sort of fix these individual ingredients, put them in such a place so that I don't throw them away and that sometimes they're useful for me immediately after I get back and sometimes many months into the future. So that might be that um, if I have leftover eggs, I'll either separate them into yolks and whites and freeze those uh, or I'll crack them whole into a container enough for, let's say, an omelet in the future. It has to be in the portion size appropriate to how you're going to use it. Um, I'll take all of my citrus fruit and I'll squeeze it into one container and freeze it, and then that will be good for a sangria later on. Um, anything that is a green, I would probably cook off, squeeze the moisture out of, and freeze. I mean, my freezer becomes... Um, a friend at this point. But the key is to make sure that um, what you're doing is helpful for, t for you later on. Um, and then sometimes it also means passing food on to your neighbor when you've run out of steam. <laughs> then there, when you're packing yeah. and you can't do anymore. Exactly. Okay, this might be the last question, but this is the one that's been burning me because I think it's the bane. I, I, I love your advice on like organization and stuff. Cause I feel like I'm always searching for ways to make my fridge serve me best. Um, do you have favorite containers? Good yes. Question. Cause I think that's, yeah. that always holds me back. I'm like, well, I don't have the right thing for this. So I, I wrap it I don't in saran wrap right and container. it gets gross. And I know it's true. In the first classes that I taught, people would look afterwards, you know, a bit, overwhelmed like what's what's going on in your head I just need to get containers <laughs> <laughs> I can help you out with that um so these days actually forever I've been using um the same container which is the general quart container or pint container that you get in your uh restaurant takeout because they use one kind of lid so I'm opposed mm. to containers of different sizes with different size lids. It's maddening. <laughs> I understand that some containers nest, but when you live in New York City, nesting takes up too much room. They need to stack compactly. So um, while I prefer glass over plastic, I don't have a life that accommodates large nesting bowls of glassware. Um yeah, so for me, it's um, plastic containers that stack, take up the least bit of room. Round is nice. Square is nicer. Um, and then always have baking soda alongside your sink for cleaning them. Mm. That's my other tip. Nice. Yeah, I think I've, I've fallen into the Pyrex trap 
and yeah, and I and I want it to work for my lifestyle, and it just pirates feel like you're right a legitimate now. cook, but really they, um, I can't have. I mean, I have, I I probably have no fewer than seventy five containers in my house, and I can't have that many nice ones, mm-hmm. <laughs> Gro- grown up ones, you yeah. know. Um, so Rana, where can people learn more about both the nimble cook, the book that's out now, and then purple kale kitchen works if they would like to come cook with you in person. The nimble cook is available anywhere books are sold. Um, including on my website, which is then where you can find out more information about the events, uh, class up classes and pop-up dinners at purple kale kitchen works. And that is purple Com, the color of the vegetable.com. Awesome. All right. Speaking of the vegetable. So today's trivia in honor of Rana is all about kale. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a fun one. And I'm very excited that I get to press You've got buzzers. the buttons today. <laughs> Do you know which is which? Yes. Oh, wait. Can, I, can I say one thing That's about one? kale? Yes, you can. Okay. I hope it's not one of our questions though. No, I just want to say, because this is about kale and it's about Rana. My um, biggest challenge with kale was always figuring out what to do with the stems because I always feel bad throwing them away. Yes. And I went to a dinner that Rana cooked and she had the kale stems, but they'd been like pickled. Love that. And they were a snack on the table and it changed my life. And it's in the book. So smart. Um, Todd Richards did a recipe about the same thing with collard greens. And Mm. then he pickled the collard green stems and you have them for like everything you'd want. Great pickles. Remember that for later. Um, Mm. Also, uh, my dog loves the kale stems. He thinks that's a stick, and he pretty much just mulches them on like whatever carpet happens to be the one that would be most uh, gross from that. It's difficult to clean. But it, if if anybody has like a very chewy dog, they're really nice for. That's him going too. in my next book. Yeah. <laughs> no, I had a cat that would do that with like broccoli stems mm-hmm. too. Daisy's um, been eating kale lately. Also, if anybody oh. is a, a Fresh Direct shopper right now. Um, I just got these last night. The long stem artichokes they have right now. So speaking of stems, they're hysterical. Like they, I opened up the bag and I just started cracking up because you know, like the tomahawk pork chops that they have at Heritage Foods now. <laughs> I mean, this thing is two feet long. The I was like, why are these six dollars? But they were they're on sale right now. Yeah. Also, like one artichoke is like two huge handfuls. And the stem is like two feet long, so uh, I usually do them in the instant pot, and it's not going to fit. This is a new problem, so uh, it's going to be cool. Anyway, buy those giant artichokes right now, the long stems. All right, so here's our kale trivia. I'm ready. All right. And um, I don't think everyone's seen the the answer, so you have some teammates if you need help. Uh Okay, question number one. What plant family does kale belong to? Oh, Plant family. I can give you a hint. It's family. Plants. It's family members are broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, and kohlrabi. It's the cipherisus. Oh, yeah. What she said. Brasca. That's right. That's so fun to press the button. Okay. (laughs) This is clearly more for me than anybody. Uh, Okay. Next question. Which green has has the exact same species name as kale? I mentioned it earlier popular in the south oh i don't get it's not multiple choice no oh collard (laughs) yay uh both are known as brassica olor olor i don't know how to say this olorasia olorasia variety acephala something like that (laughs) that's why katie's the boss (laughs) katie knows spanish so she has an answer uh, yeah it's my my span language bantlin um (laughs) Slash yes. science background. Cl- clearly the, the most important criteria for our jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, next question. In in what century did the first known use of the word kale occur? Guess a number between 1 and 21. I'm going to say 7th. Oh. Higher. Oh, it echoes. Whoa, that is just going on and on. That's trippy. I'll give you a hint. Yeah. Multiply it by two. Fourteen. That's not a hint. Fourteen. That was the answer. I was going to say 20. It comes from the old English word coal, as in coleslaw, which was used to refer to lots of different brassicas. Uh Uh-huh. 
Next question. How many petals do the flowers of kale plants have? Petals on the flowers of kale. But you don't see them often. No, no. They look like the broccoli flowers, which are delicious. Mm -hmm. They have five petals. Close. A little lower. Four petals. <laughs> yes. Subtract one. Subtract. I'll give you a hint. Minus one. Yeah, your hints are too good. <laughs> All right, this is my fa- absolute favorite question. Okay, I'm going to get it right. What restaurant chain has was the world's largest purchaser of kale prior to the kale as health food craze? Whoa. Restaurant chain. And it's probably, I'm going to say, the last one you would expect. I'll give you a hint. <laughs> Is it the answer? Yes, the answer. Come on. <laughs> it's a pizza restaurant. It's not Pizza Hut. It is. Do they use is. it for garnish? garnish? How did Close. you get that? Close. It's not technically garnish. Right. Close. They use it as decor for the salad bar. Yes, they oh, did. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they did. You can I'm see it, so right? impressed, yeah. Rana. I did not think that you were going to get that right. That's my away. favorite kale fact. <laughs> All right, last question. About around how heavy was the largest kale plant ever, according to the Guinness Book of World Records? This one is multiple choice. Was it 63 pounds, 105 pounds, 248 pounds, or 390 pounds? Oh my God, 390. Because they're all absurd. (laughs) No. Should I just give it to you? Yeah. 105 pounds. Pounds. One kale. It was plant. grown by Scott Robb. Shout out to Scott Robb. What the up, U- Scott? In the U.S., it was weighed at the Alaska State Fair in Palmer, Alaska. Wow. Did you guys know that like all the largest like fruits and vegetables, like the largest pumpkins and stuff, they all come from Alaska? Wow. Because it's, it's a long day. Because all the daylight. Because mm-hmm. yeah. their growing season is like short, but the days are so super super long that like these plants that grow gigantic oh. do really well with the long sun hours. That's cool. That is cool. So if anybody asks you, like, where was the world's largest, like, ex-plant grown, it's Alaska. Are mm. people really big in Alaska, too? <laughs> well, that's Texas. I don't know. Yeah, that's Texas. <laughs> Everything's um, bigger in Texas. Except bigger. for kale plants. Yeah. It's from all the kale there. Well. Pizza Hut. <laughs> Rana won trivia. Yay! That was amazing. I think that that was the most questions somebody's gotten right on trivia in, like, at least a year. Yeah. 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 Well done. Wow. Yeah. So that was genius. Congratulations. I, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the scaffolding. <laughs> All um, right. Well, any final final words? I feel like we should all send you a picture of our refrigerators oh, in a I week because I, I, I'm like looking at Katie and Kat and we're all like, yes, we're going to transform Are we all going to do lives. our before and after <laughs> fridge picture? Yeah, I think we should. Mm-hmm. I, think I we feel should. like I've been doing pretty well lately and I yelled at Will the other day because I made nachos like in tinfoil in the oven and he wrapped up the leftovers in tinfoil and I was like, Dave Arnold said you can't do that. He's also like anything that you wrap in foil without labeling it doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't know what it is. So that's true. I, I'm starting to be a stickler for organization of my refrigerator. Well, that's my favor. I also, um, yeah. 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 Well, I'm getting shout out to Stytown right now because my uh, kitchen is still torn out, and I'm not going to have gas for two months, even though I pay 17 gajillion dollars every month in rent. So uh, I'm also all for things that don't require an oven right now that exactly. I can make on my hot plates. Yeah. <laughs> it's, at least it's happening going into like spring and summer. Yeah, yep, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Just fruit and cheese. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, but <laughs> no bread. Um, no more. Maybe bread. we want to mention parlor wines. Uh, sure. So next Thursday, right? Next Thursday from May ninth. May ninth. Oh, today, May ninth. Yeah. Is today we It's night. definitely today. We're, we're, definitely to- today. we're totally live right, right after now. this. It, right <laughs> after this, I'm headed over to Parlor Wines, which is in Greenpoint. Yes. An amazing wine store where we have paired some of their favorite wines um, that they've recently gotten into the store, along with some of my favorite things from the cookbook, both of which would be great to take to the park for picnics. Yes. yes. It is we picnic are all season. About picnic picnics. season. Great. Um, six to eight, so we're, we're going there right now. On right our way. Now. We're on our way right now to Parlor Wines. As we're doing this interview, we're, we're in yes. a moving studio. Teleportation. See you in Greenpoint. That's right. Um, 
Well, Rana, thank you so much for joining us for our season premiere thank of you. HR and Happy Hour. Hooray. This We're has been so glad to have you. Awesome thank way you. to kick it off. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations um, on the book launch. Yes, thank you. You guys are awesome. We love you. We Come love back. You. Come and stay with us all the time on Asia and Happy Hour. Now, also, also anybody who's been a guest on Happy Hour is always welcome to come back and co-host the show with us. So oh anytime, God. you're that welcome. Exciting. And then you can go to other people and make them do trivia. Sure. <laughs> Hannah's like thumbs up. Uh, and I thanks, love watching them squirm. And thanks, Sari, for coming and hanging out Yay. with us. Yay! Thanks for having me, guys. Come back anytime. Okay. <laughs> it's a good kind of crossover episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, I don't know if it was playing, but we should play Sari's um, network spots on this episode. Yes, we should. Very cool. Yeah. Well, with that, thank you, Jeet. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Sari. Thank you, Rana. Thank you, Kat. Thank you, Katie. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.